Welcome to the Calvary Limerick Podcast, the teaching ministry of Pastor David Cowper. We're a church that seeks to live together before the face of God. We hope today's message blesses you. I wanted to start by asking you a question today. And the question is, are you religious? And it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because we as evangelicals, as Bible-believing, born-again Christians, we don't really like the term religious, do we? And we wouldn't put ourselves into that category. <laughs> this past week, somebody called me after finding my number on Calvary Limerick's website. And one of the questions they asked was, are you religious? I think I might have literally t- taken a step back, not that they could see that, on the phone. Surprised by the question when a person who had found a phone number on a church's website asked, are you religious? It's a murky one, we don't know how to answer it. So, what I said was, no, initially, and then explained what I meant. Because even the way it's asked, and even the way that person asked it, we can hear the negative connotations behind the question. The tone of the asker is negative. It's kind of like if you're religious, then your opinion doesn't matter. That's the message, that's the feeling we get. And our culture has become very anti-religious and anti-church and even anti-God. And so we get the feeling to say yes would be the wrong answer. So I said no. But I think it's interesting that this week, the last two verses of James chapter 1 is on this idea about being religious and what that really means. And so I hope as we read it, we can have a right understanding about what religion is so that we can easier answer that question and maybe easier explain what we mean when we say yes or no. And more importantly, so we can be doers of the word of God and not just hearers only. So let's just read those last two verses, 26 and 27 from James chapter 1. It says, Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the last bit of James chapter 1. James has been telling us a whole lot about living in our new identity as Christians and what that means, what's compatible with that identity and what, like being quick to listen, being doers of the word, considering it all joy, and what isn't, like being angry or quick to anger. James longs to see us becoming mature in Christ, and he is the half-brother of Jesus. Some people in a particular church have tried to wipe this man's identity from history because he doesn't fit with their doctrine, he doesn't fit with their narrative. And that's an example of what religion shouldn't be. To see how deeply this goes, there's a first century box, I'm probably going to say the thing, what it's called wrong, but it's like an ossuary or ossuary. And it was found in the Kidron Valley, which is beside the Temple Mount, the valley that's to the mount in Jerusalem. And to explain the significance of this box, we need to quickly explain Jewish burial customs in the first century when Jesus was around. We all know that people were buried in tombs, right? Lazarus and Jesus, we've, we were aware of that. We know those stories. But people weren't left lying in the tombs. Their bodies decomposed, and they added things to the burial clothes to kind of speed up that process. 
and then the bones would be taken and placed into a little box a few years later. This particular one is inscribed with the Hebrew text, James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. In other words, this box should have been the final resting place of this James, the James that wrote this letter, until archaeologists dug it up. But the thing about it, there's many people with vested interests trying to discredit it, trying to prove that it's not authentic. Because if it's real, then Jesus really had brothers. And it gives evidence to the existence of Jesus and to the Bible's version of events. But every test they have done on it, on the box itself, how the inscription is written, looking at like bacterial growth on the inscription, everything has proven that this is a first century box. And somebody even did probability into the possibility of somebody being called James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus, in the time period, and estimated that there would be, at most, two living in Jerusalem at the time. So it's very, very likely that this is this James. As well as that, a lot of them aren't even inscribed. They just have just blank boxes, or they might say, if the person was wealthy or famous, their name and their father's name. To name the brother meant that the brother was even more famous than the famous person, as it were. History and archaeology consistently back up the Bible. And we don't need history to do this for us, because we know the Bible is true, so of course every discovery is going to back up what the Bible says. But it's nice to see things like that. It's like a little energy drink for our faith. A healthy energy drink. But notice, people of a religious view other than the truly biblical Christianity, both Christians and secularists or atheists or humanists and even some from the Jewish community, use religion badly to try and oppress and hide the truth of some of these sorts of discoveries. And it's things like this that make religion look bad. Dogmatic acceptance of what you believe even in the face of facts. Many people in our society think of us similarly. They think we blindly accept the teachings of Christianity when our modern society doesn't need a God and has in their eyes proven God doesn't exist or at the very least that he doesn't matter. The majority of the population think religion is a negative. The opium of the people, as Karl Marx once said. And his full sentence was, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. It carries that idea you've probably heard and people have probably said to you that religion is a crutch. Some people in society have evolved, and that's a conversation for another day, beyond their need for a God, while other people, lesser people, is the unsaid, but often communicated undertone, need a crutch, and so use God. Religion is seen as backwards, unenlightened, dogmatic, judgmental, and increasingly related to the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church in this country. In other words, it's negative. So of course, when we are asked if we're religious, we take a step back and we kind of are scared of the idea and we're not sure how to answer. And then there's another level to it too. What society thinks it means to be religious. What do religious people do? They try and please their God, try and get to heaven, making him happy, doing little things for him. They maybe go to church or mass, say prayers, light candles, 
have medals of St. Jerome or St. Francis of Sales, I think it is. I don't know if they even make medals of them, but they're the patron saints of writers, and I was writing this at the time. <laughs> so there's much confusion around what religion is and about what religious means. Even in the days when James wrote this letter, that was the case. Jesus had been the scene, on the scene not too long before, maybe 15 to 25 years after the resurrection this is written. And you'll remember that he had his harshest words for those who were the religious leaders of his day. So it isn't a modern phenomenon that the word religion and the term religious carry negative connotations. But in these two verses, James uses the word religion. Religious in these verses, it's the only time it appears in the New Testament. But religion is also found in Colossians 2.18 and Acts 26.5. In Colossians, it's talking about people who incorrectly worship angels, and in Acts, it's where Paul says he was a Pharisee, the strictest sect of the Jewish religion. And the word itself carries the idea of ritual or practice. It's not a theoretical religion that James is talking about here. It's the practical, active religion, doing things. So, what he isn't saying here is a term that we might use like biblical or gospel. You can't replace like perfectly Christian words for that word religion. He's using a word that elsewhere in the Bible has been used to refer to religion negatively. And I find that interesting because he doesn't shy away from the word despite the confusion that's there in his day and the connotations that are negative that it can carry. So what isn't religion? It isn't hypocrisy, it isn't judgmentalism, it isn't separation from the world in a sense of um, cutting yourself off and not being part of society at all. It isn't blind faith in something. We walk by faith and not by sight, but that doesn't mean we walk blindly. We walk in a greater light, in the light of the knowledge of God. So we've looked at what being religious is believed to be and what it isn't, so what is it? James gives us three points, and I think we need to read those verses again because we've probably forgotten what they say by now. And it's not my word that matters, it's God's word, God's word that matters. So let's read 26 and 27 again. <clears throat> those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So the first thing James mentions here about our religion is to do with our tongues. It's an issue that James will come back to a number of times throughout the book, which tells us that it was a real problem in the church that he was writing to, or the churches that he was writing to. That's probably a real problem today too. He later likens it to a bit in a horse's mouth or a rudder on a ship and how you can control the whole horse, the whole ship, by just that small part. I don't want to go too much into this right now because if we ever get to James chapter 3, maybe in 2020, um, we'll look at it then. But now I think it's important to comment on why this is important for us. We're followers of, followers of Jesus. And it's interesting to see the way he, Jesus himself, used words. He was seldom critical or harsh. The pattern of Christ's speech is encouraging, challenging, thoughtful, insightful, sometimes even funny. Even secular society would call him a great teacher. So we know the things he said were good. 
He also used words to correct, especially when he saw a lack of faith. He pointed that out and he questioned it and he brought attention to it. And when people were using God for their own purposes, using religion badly, that was when he had his harshest words, when he used criticism. Jesus was on earth in a time that was not too dissimilar from our own, for there's nothing new under the sun, as Ecclesiastes 1.9 says. In his day, people gossiped, people said hurtful things about one another, they used their tongues badly, and especially in the context we're looking at, used their tongues to say they were religious, while actually being deeply sinful and far from God, abusing positions and their power, not unlike things that happen today. There was a practice in his day called Korban, and it was originally a good practice commanded by God in the Old Testament, but people were using it as a way of getting out of looking after family members and people in their community. They'd say that the money that they could help orphans or could help widows in their family or in their community was Corbin, meaning it was dedicated to God, so they didn't have to give it to those people, which really meant they could keep it for themselves. And Jesus called out his culture on those things. And I think there's things in our culture that he would call us out for as well. Things that we say that are similar to saying, this is Corbin. Another thing relating to our tongues, and I think this is why James has, is the first thing he mentions when speaking about true religion, is what Jesus said about religious practice. Again, his day and our day, they're not too dissimilar. And in Matthew 15, he's addressing a crowd and talking about what people believe is important in religion. Specifically, for his context at the time, it was food laws and ceremonially, I can't say that, anyway, washing your hands, um, but it boils down to law. And here's what Jesus had to say. He called the people to him and he said to them, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall in a pit. But Peter said to him, explain your parable to us. And he said, are you still so without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defiles a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So the tongue is the window, if you like, to the true person and where their heart is, where our heart is. So the hearts of the people aren't right because they're allowing their tongues to run wild. And James says that mature Christians are not people who allow their tongues to run riot, but who control them. And this isn't saying that we're people who hide what we're really thinking. I call that Christian nicety. Far from it. It's indicating a life that's changed by grace through faith and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, so that we become people who have controlled people, controlled tongues, because we are people who have controlled hearts by God. There's so much more that can be said, but James has two other things to say about religion when we're Christians. But you just notice the seriousness of it. He says, you're deceiving yourself, and he says your religion is worthless if you can't control your tongue. Those are, that's a serious warning. 
So control of our tongue must be important. And in verse 37, James goes on and says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. We cannot impress God. We can't win favour with God or earn our way into heaven by the things that we do. It just doesn't work like that. So what's the purpose of deeds or good works? Because it's by them we can honour God. We worship God. And we can bring glory to God through our lives. And here James is going to tell us two separate things that God accepts as worship, as honouring to him. The first is what, God, what James is really calling us to do, what God is calling us to do through James, is to serve God by serving those less fortunate and often forgotten. We live in an interesting age, I think. The church has, throughout history, often been on the forefront in serving our communities and trying to make life better for people. Often while the government sits up in Leinster House debating if they should help, it is people of faith who are out there on the ground helping. But the negativity towards Christianity that we have today often demands that Christians, the religion, the church, whoever it is, stays out of social issues. We should be about the business of saving souls, it said. But saving souls accounts for more than just preaching the gospel and having something happen on a spiritual level. There is a practical level to it too. And why we should never say that the gospel is all about meeting people's physical needs. Some people do and they're wrong. We Bible-believing Christians have often gone the other way and withdrawn from seeing the helping of orphans and widows or say the feeding of homeless as part of our Christian duty and privilege. Here James tells us the truth. True religion, some of the best things we can do to worship God and to bring him glory is to look after those who don't have what we have, those who are being forgotten by our society. And the last of the three things that James gives us when talking about true religion, or how to worship God, how to bring him glory in our actions, is about being separate from the world. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So what does that mean? The ESV puts the word polluted as stained, which I like, carries the sense that we'll still be in heaven, or on the new earth eventually, but there'll be a stain. Because what we do here and now matters. Again, we Bible-believing Christians have tended to make Christianity all about what we believe and not really focusing on what we do. Because our salvation is all based on what Jesus did for us. And our belief in that glorious gospel, that makes sense. But as we grow, and that's the thing that James is interested in, we need to understand the implications of the gospel for the rest of our lives. The Bible speaks of people getting into heaven when they die and talks about rewards for what they've done on earth. Our actions, what we do here, it matters. We don't want to enter into eternity stained or more stained than we already are. We want all that God promises us, all the good gifts and things he has in store for us and the things that he gives us as a reward for basically allowing him to change us and to work through us by the power of his Holy Spirit. He's a good, good father. But how can we be staying by the world or polluted by the world? What does that mean? It harkens back to the idea in the Old Testament of the sacrificial lamb. They had to be unblemished. And that reminds us of Jesus, the true lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. So there's an obvious connection to him. He's the real unstained or unpolluted lamb. So to be polluted by the world is to not follow Jesus, 
to not allow the grace and power of the Holy Spirit transform us into the image of Christ and to renew our minds. It's to hold on to the world, to the sins of our past, or even sometimes things we like but shouldn't like as much as we do, making them idols and so making them sinful. Hebrews 12, 1-2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, so that's not necessarily sin, but a weight, and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The world wants to spot the Christian and start to defile him. First, there's a friendship with the world in James 4.4, which then can lead to a love for the world, which is mentioned in 1 John 2.15-17. And if we're not careful, we'll be condemned with the world in 1 Corinthians 11.32. But that doesn't mean we'll lose our salvation. Our salvation is not dependent on our works. But what we can lose is our reward. We can lose what we lived for. So to close, I just want to read the chorus of the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, because that contains, in song form, the best way to stay undefiled and unpolluted by the world and to bring God glory and praise in all we do. And I want you to ponder the question that we asked at the start again. Are you religious? Are you religious like our society deems religious people? Or are you religious, like James says, is appropriate for Christians to be? You shouldn't be one, but you should be the other. Are you religious? So it says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your great grace. Thank you for your salvation that's not dependent in any way upon our works, but all dependent on what you did, Jesus, on the cross for us. Lord, we thank you that you died to save us and we thank you that that salvation doesn't mean that you just leave us in the mud and the mire that you find us in Jesus but that you've got people like James teaching us what it means to be a Christian what it means to walk um, in our identity as Christians and Lord we just pray that we would be not just hearers of the word but doers also Lord as we looked at last time and that we would consider what it means to be religious as James has outlined here as you have outlined through James Lord and Lord, we would take these things, control of our tongue, looking after those who are less fortunate and remaining unpolluted by the world, Lord. And that we'd be able to do them in the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Not in our own might, not in our own strength, but in your power. And Lord, we look forward to the reward that you have for us for just listening to you and allowing you to work in us, Lord. And we pray that we would be people who would be focused on you turning our eyes upon Jesus and looking full in his wonderful face, Lord.